Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Attorney General Gettner Drummond is suing the statewide virtual charter school board. Drummond is slamming the deal for a Catholic charter school as an irreparable violation of individual religious liberty and unthinkable waste of taxpayer dollars. Ryan, what do you think of the attorney general getting involved in this fight? Well, I think that this was inevitable. We knew that this was going to happen. As we discussed last week, one of the real questions that remained was whether there was going to be any sort of administrative or procedural hurdle uh, that the virtual charter school board was going to try to overcome by having members that voted in affirmative and and approving the contract uh, sign the contract. That appears to have been the case. The attorney general in his lawsuit challenging uh, the uh, the relationship proposed relationship between the state of Oklahoma and this Catholic-run virtual charter school uh, that uh, doesn't really seem to be a part of the attorney general's challenge. He really just goes straight to the meat of the issue here, which is that this it, you know, is a violation of the state constitution and it's a violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution and his uh, <clears throat> and the lawsuit that he has filed uh, before the Oklahoma Supreme Court asking them to assume original jurisdiction in that case. And if you if you look at some of the things that that he says, uh, it's it's pretty uh, it, it is pretty stark, as you as you said, uh, Michael, he you know, he says that this this will be a reckoning uh, and that the state of Oklahoma will be uh, you know, setting itself up not only um, you know, in this matter, but to set itself up for future instances where the state's constitution would be challenged over and over and over again. Uh, I liked one of his uh, comparisons there. He said, you know, this would be a matter of, you know, what if we had a, a Catholic highway patrol? Uh, you know, we, we, we wouldn't like that. And this is, it's very clear that a charter school is a, is a state public school. Um, the attorney general also, also quotes several cases in the state of Oklahoma, but one in which I'm very, very familiar with because I was a, a counsel in this case, and that's Prescott v. Oklahoma Capital Preservation Commission. Uh, and he, he looks at the fact that, you know, while the he says he quotes uh, from uh, one of the justices concurring opinions. He says, while the constitutional framers may have been men of faith, they recognized the necessity of a complete separation of church and state and sought to prevent the ills that would befall the state if they failed to provide for this complete separation in the Oklahoma Constitution, because the Oklahoma Constitution goes even further than the First Amendment. Neva. Uh, it's clear that, I mean, the governor and the attorney general, I mean, they're sparring, they're dueling press releases, this aggravated kind of rhetoric uh, on both sides. Uh, whether the public is starting to pay a lot of attention, I think remains to be seen. But 
one only has to uh, make a pretty quick read of either either individual's comments to kind of see that uh, that the rhetoric is is escalating. I mean, the the attorney general in his release last Friday, I mean, he made it clear, as you say, Ryan, that uh, um, that the contract violated in his estimation the religious liberty of every Oklahoma bec Oklahoman because it forced the state to fund teaching of a specific uh, religious sect with tax dollars. And he went on to say uh, that uh, basically that Oklahomans uh, would were being compelled to fund Catholicism and the legal precedent of that actions. I mean, he 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 really likened it to opening the door for so many other things, forcing um, in his in his words, I think he said uh, funding radical Muslim teachings like Sharia law and other things and pointed out that the governor, um, according to the attorney general, gov uh, he said that the governor had indicated that he would welcome uh, such a Muslim charter school funded by tax dollars. So, you know, you have that on the one side and then you have the governor basically taking uh, some real swipes at the attorney general saying that basically he lacked any firm grasp of constitutional principle or of, of what religious freedom really is and tried to say that he was really masking his disdain for Catholics uh, pursuing uh, uh, this, uh, this charter school because it didn't align with his own uh, religious preference. Again, I mean, the the, the back and forth, uh, the attorney general, I mean, one of the things he said was that the framers of the Constitution uh, and those that drafted the Oklahoma Constitution understood the, the, uh, the need to protect religious freedom by preventing the state from sponsoring any religion at all. So you've got you've got two individuals at the top of the helm at uh, uh, in state government uh, with diametrically opposite views on what's going on with respect to this. I thought it was interesting the first time I had read or seen the attorney general make the statement to the effect that he was willing to go all the way to the United States Supreme Court to litigate this to ensure that um, that in his estimation, the correct outcome took place for uh, all Oklahomans. Well, and it wouldn't just be ensuring what he believes is a correct outcome and what I uh, tend to believe is a correct outcome, but it would be ensuring that the provision in the state constitution, in our constitution, uh, survives a challenge before the United States Supreme Court, because that provision of our state constitution, which creates this, this separation of church and state, uh, that would be at issue uh, before the United States Supreme Court. So he's he's really upholding his oath of office. The attorney general is in defending our state constitution and, and doing so in a way that he believes is consistent with the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. I think it's interesting, too, that the um, that the board of the Catholic virtual school they weighed in in a prepared statement um, somewhere in the mix of all of these uh, dueling uh, statements and press releases that were going out. And basically, they said that the attorney general was employing, in their words, I think, fear and discrimination and trying to say that he was twisting the religious, uh, twisting religious liberty um, and really ignoring the real successes of faith-based faith-based schools across the country, that seemed to kind of fall flat and not get much uh, attention or traction, as well as some of the other groups that weighed in on both sides of this issue. And it's certainly something, as we've talked about, that's not going away. It ultimately, probably years from now, potentially may wind up at the United States Supreme Court.
Well, last week, we talked about vacancies at the Board of Education after the resignation of Suzanne Reynolds. Well, soon afterward, Governor Stitt announced a new person for Reynolds' seat and another to replace Trent Smith, who left in May. Zach Archer serves on the Hammond Public School Board, and Alex Gray works as managing partner for an international consulting firm to the State Board of Education. Neva, what do you think of these appointments? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think the governor moved uh, quickly. We talked about last week, would that happen? How long would these these vacancies uh, uh, be open? But he has he's named these two members uh, uh, with very different backgrounds. Uh, Zach Archer on the, uh, uh, I think, vice vice president of the, the school board with Hammond Public Schools. Hammond, a small community out in western Oklahoma. Uh, when I read that he had been appointed, I looked up just out of curiosity, and Hammond Public Schools has 266 students, I believe it was, mm -hmm. uh, in pre-K, K through 12. So small, small rural uh, school district. And then you have his other appointee, someone kind of just on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum. Someone, uh, Alex Gray, not only has a very, um, very extensive resume in um, uh, what he has done in Washington, D.C. He was the um, uh, deputy assistant to President Trump and chief of staff of the White House National uh, Security Council uh, under the Trump administration, has held a number of high profile roles in Washington, came back uh, to Oklahoma. And actually, I think uh, some some of our listeners may remember the name because he was one of the uh, 10 candidates, uh, Republicans, who were in the U.S. Senate Republican primary for the uh, uh, seat that Jim Inhofe left in the United States Senate. And that that was a, a, an interesting race. Someone in his in his um, um, short time in the race, I mean, he came in quickly, raised, I think, uh, I remember $100,000 in the first 24 hours, but then couldn't really gain any traction and ultimately um, I think wound up with one uh, percent of the vote, but still was a contender and a and a candidate for the United States Senate on in the in that Republican primary. So, uh, two individuals that will come to the board, they'll have to hit the ground running. I, I'm sure they have had those conversations with the governor's office. They know what they're getting into, uh, and we'll watch with interest as the board continues to do their work uh, in the upcoming meetings uh, and through the rest of the year. Ryan. Well, you know, uh, we, we could guess that he was that the governor was going to like Alex Gray, one of his appointments. If you look on his publications on LinkedIn, he has a uh, an article that he published in The Washington Times back in 2022 called McGirt v. Oklahoma, the Supreme Court's fatally flawed decision. Uh, so, I mean, it's like, you know, he and the governor are going to be simpatico on that. And I, I do think that uh, when you look at both of these appointments, the thing that is is probably most important uh, and 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 understanding them is that both of these candidates uh, are probably going to be expected to carry the governor's water on the board. Uh, the governor really doesn't have a track record or a pattern uh, of appointing people because of their ability for independent thought uh, or being able to convince the governor that them going one way when the governor would prefer to go another way, that that's acceptable. Uh, I think, you know, this, this governor has, has shown he has these, you know, fairly new uh, you know, powers of the executive uh, to be able to you know, basically fire folks at will on these boards and commissions. And so I think that 
it would be interesting to see, though, as we discussed last week, what are the conversations that the governor had with both of these appointees? In particular, how is the governor going instructed them or how might he instruct them in the future uh, to possibly push back against some of Superintendent Walter's uh, plans, especially whenever it comes to funding and education and the common education budget before the legislature. You know, that that was really the, the first time that we've seen the governor uh, and Ryan Walters on a separate policy page uh, in, 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 uh, since you know, Ryan Walters was elected to that position. And are these two appointees of the governor now going to be carrying a message to the superintendent, you know, uh, hold your horses whenever it comes to talking about taking money out of education? A national advocacy group is starting an investigation of Oklahoma's partnership with conservative media nonprofit PragerU. Officials with Americans United for Separation of Church and State say they want more information on how Oklahoma plans to implement PragerU materials into public schools. For those who don't know, PragerU was created by conservative radio talk show host Dennis Prager. It's not a university or academic institution. Ryan, what do you think of this investigation? When we talk about an investigation, what we're really talking about are open records requests that have been filed uh, with the State Department of Education. I think that that's probably the, the meat of the investigation. Uh, before we even get to a point where they have results, where Americans United for Separation of Church and State have results to be able to look over and, and possibly identify uh, prospects for litigation, they're going to have to get these requests fulfilled. And that hasn't been something that the State Department of Education has been very good at. So before we even get to consideration by Americans United or any other group about whether PragerU uh, would or maybe uh, has violated either the state constitution or the federal constitution uh, and the prohibition, uh, the prohibition on, as, you, as we said, the, uh, the commingling of, of state and sectarian purposes and the prohibition of the that are, that are uh, outlined in the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution, before we ever get there, uh, we're likely to have a challenge over getting these records to begin with. And I think that you know it's, it's far more likely that any litigation that's initiated by Americans United in the coming months will focus around the failure of the State Department of Education to turn over all of the records that have been requested here uh, than we do on the actual substantive issues uh, dealing with separation of church and state. Neva. Well, it will be interesting because, first of all, um, PragerU is a vendor or an education partner, whatever you want to describe them as, in states uh, other than Oklahoma. Florida, we've talked about. I think Texas, Montana. Even in New Hampshire, I read recently, the uh, students there can actually earn high school credit for completing the uh, PragerU um, financial literacy course. So, this is not isolated to Oklahoma. I think uh, certainly they. you're right, Ryan. Can they delve in and get information and really begin to make any assessment from the outside looking in remains to be seen. What can happen, and I think is the larger conversation at hand, is what lawmakers will do with respect to this. Because you're talking about uh, still questions on whether or not these materials would ultimately be passed or become part of the curriculum in Oklahoma schools. And that's a different process. I mean, the uh, first of all, we know that each legislative session, you have the Administrative Rules Committee. They have the prerogative 
and and do approve or deny rule changes that are put forward by agencies and departments. And that would include the Department of Education. So um, I think there's already some interest in uh, among lawmakers in wanting to follow what is happening right now. The curriculum is uh, as as it has been outlined is there for uh, for use if teachers choose to, but it's not mandatory. I think the focus on these materials, if there is an interest in going through what has really always been described as a, a very uh, scrupulous process in Oklahoma, as, as most states, in developing curriculum, uh, you have Oklahoma teachers that are selected uh, by the, the State Department of Education to pick the curriculum, see the curriculum drafted. I mean, it's a lengthy process that goes on for years, not uh, just a, a few months in this process. So I will watch with interest what uh, the conversation is early in the session in terms of lawmakers trying to get information from the Department of Education, from the superintendent specifically, as he uh, as he is asked more and more questions about this among the many issues that continue to be raised on the education front. Oklahoma is seeing an exodus of textbook publishers over an increasingly politicized fight over what is taught in public schools. Eight companies have withdrawn from consideration ahead of an expected vote on math materials next month by the Oklahoma Textbook Committee. The companies bowing out include Hofton Mifflin Harcourt, one of the biggest publishers and textbooks in the U.S. Neva, should this raise concerns among educators and state officials? Well, I think it's something that definitely is a conversation point. I mean, you, that the very company that you talk about, Michael, one of the largest textbook companies in, in America, they have hundreds of books, uh, I believe, in, uh, in Oklahoma that have been approved, and many of them approved through the years for a number of years. So uh, to have a number of these companies now uh, basically not really say anything. They just are not, uh, they're not putting themselves in the process to be uh, to be uh, considered uh, as a vendor to bid. And that becomes a complicating factor when you think about the fact that a small, smaller states, just like Oklahoma, um, they're not as attractive for these large publishing houses uh, when you're talking about creating textbooks that have to follow the cur approved curriculum also from the state side. So, uh, there, there becomes a real push there, and I think that's some of the initial uh, concerns that have been expressed publicly. Is how is this going to impact? Uh, how is this going to impact things? And even with respect to the Oklahoma Textbook Committee and their uh, consideration coming up for uh, a vote soon, I believe within a month or so on on the uh, math materials. Obviously, I mean, you hear a number of uh, these educators across the state weighing in saying uh, we have to have as many options as possible, particularly those that are in the uh, STEM alliance, which science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I mean, those folks, uh, they they view it as critical to have uh, to have the uh, the best options out there that are available from across the country to be able to provide for students in Oklahoma. So I think the fact that you had 17 companies initially being asked to consider um, uh, in, the, in this year's uh, textbook process on the math, you know, on the math textbooks, and to see so many of them withdraw and withdraw with no comment, 
Um, you know, a number of folks have said that they view this as as a result of this politically charged rhetoric that we continue to to hear um, on both sides, you know, kind of on both sides of the education debate uh, with respect to curriculum. Um, with Superintendent Walters weighing in with one point of view, many others uh, kind of challenging that view. So when the dust settles, we'll just have to see how many companies wound up being in the mix and what the uh, what the opportunity was for the state in terms of having textbook selections uh, coming up in the next few years. Ryan. Well, it is speculation at this point. As Neva said, we don't know. We're, we're not seeing comments from these textbook companies as to why they're withdrawing their uh, their bid uh, to be a vendor to the state of Oklahoma for, for textbook selection. But we, we do know, I, I don't think that it, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist uh, to, to figure out that all of the academic chaos uh, that is undergoing, that the state of Oklahoma is currently undergoing uh, in the administration uh, at the State Department of Education and the incompetence of uh, Ryan Walters and his insistence on bringing controversy to every single thing that he touches, um, you know, at, at some point, you know, these uh, these textbook vendors have to look at the fact that Oklahoma uh, you know, may be an important customer to them. But at the end of the day, we're not the biggest market out there. And, you know, how much uh, uh, are you going to invest in trying to win a contract with the state of Oklahoma? How much are you going to invest then in possible public relations uh, fights that you have to engage in because the state superintendent uh, has all, uh, all of a sudden decided that he's going to pick a fight with you uh, and say that you're, you know, funded by George Soros or some deal like that, and you're you're really out trying to, you know, indoctrinate kids and and uh, uh, you know uh, all of these all of the you know wild ac accusations that we've already heard and the wild ones to come that we can't even imagine yet. What do you really want to invest in being in Oklahoma? Uh, and it's a real shame because. A lot of these textbook companies are companies that will, even though we are a small market, uh, they will uh, produce textbooks that are Oklahoma specific. Uh, they will take into account Oklahoma curriculum needs. They'll take into account things that are particular and specific to our state and our state's history. That's a big deal. And so the fact now that we have fewer options to choose from, uh, that's just not a great thing. I mean, even even if there are options, some of these options you know, never really stood a chance. Uh, the fact is, is that we as a state benefit from having more options. We need to understand that as much as we would like to think of ourselves uh, as as a leader on so many things, these are market decisions. And we're really fortunate that so many textbook companies show up uh, to begin with uh, to compete for our business. And this is, again, it's speculation, but I would bet dollars to donuts that we are seeing uh, yet another result of the intentional chaos coming out of the State Department of Education. Well, and I think one example of that could be uh, the illustration of uh, what took place at the State Textbook Committee meeting earlier this month, where you had the Tulsa chapter of Moms for Liberty, a group that we've talked about before on the program, uh, basically taking to task McGraw-Hill, which is one of the companies still in the running to be on the approved uh, list for uh, math textbooks. And their issue was that they they believed that the quote uh, math mindset sections of the of the of the textbook, those were ones that talked about self-awareness or self-regulation, a number of things, decision making, all of those things that were in that particular section. 
the superintendent, uh, Ryan Walters, has, has been very uh, clear in public comments that he opposes what he what is styled as this social uh, emotional learning. And this particular uh, section in, in the textbook was what Moms for Liberty uh, filed a complaint about. And in response, the McGraw-Hill folks came back and basically said, look, uh, all this is from from our side of the uh, equation, what these sections are meant to do is facilitate this conversation to encourage students to think about uh, math problem solving in different ways, um, had a totally different take in their, I think, written response to the textbook committee from the complaint that was uh, written and filed by Moms for Liberty. So we're going to continue to see these stark contrasts in viewpoint on what should be in textbooks. And ultimately, I think what we are seeing uh, that perhaps many had not paid much attention to in the past is the fact that the state superintendent wields a big stick in these conversations and can move the needle very uh, uh, very much one direction if he or she if he or she chooses. In the instance of Ryan Walters, he's making it very clear that he's going to have a, a an additional layer of review and be much more engaged in this process than perhaps uh, some might have imagined. President Biden is nominating former Cherokee Nation Attorney General Sarah Hill to a federal judgeship in Oklahoma. The nomination was welcomed by Senators James Lankford and Mark Wayne Mullen, although Governor Stitt has criticized the move. The tribal leaders are also supporting the nomination of Hill. Ryan, do you think she will have any problems getting the position? Yeah, once she has uh, Senator Lankford and Senator, Senator Mullen on board, uh, and, and Senator Mullen even said that he anticipates a, a smooth uh, confirmation process, I don't think that we're going to see any issue. I, I think that we'll be talking about Judge Hill, uh, you know, very shortly. Um, you know, this is a, a much needed nomination. The, the Northern District is overworked. Uh, they don't have enough judges up there as it is. I think that uh, currently they're allot allotted somewhere around three and a half. Uh, we, you know, really, they need to be upwards of, you know, five or six judges, especially uh, since the McGirt decision. And we, we have seen more and more criminal cases ending up in federal courts. And, you know, that has uh, traditionally not been the case because, you know, most criminal cases prior to McGirt, even uh, criminal cases involving tribal citizens uh, on tribal lands were prosecuted unconstitutionally uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, in violation of treaty rights. Uh, but were prosecuted in uh, state courts, state district courts. So, so much of that now has moved to the federal courts, and we see you know those courts now facing you know pretty significant backlogs as they try to you know keep pace with this with this new type of uh, uh, adjudications that they have to make that are, you know, typically you don't see at the federal level in that kind of in those kinds of numbers. Um, you know, and it's also you know, welcome to see the Biden administration begin to make these nominations. Uh, with vacancies in in red states, um, even though Governor Stitt has uh, said that he opposes this uh, nomination, um, which isn't any surprise, it does demonstrate that the governor continues to be on an island, even among his own party, with regard to uh, relations with tribal governments and political relations with uh, tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma. You've got the state's two U.S. senators, uh, you know, celebrating this this nomination. Uh, you know, all but guaranteeing her confirmation as judge. And and yet the governor is still saying that he doesn't believe that 
uh, you know, that you know, uh, that she should be there. And it's in large part because of McGirt and, and the Cherokee Nation's role in McGirt and uh, Sarah Hill's role in, in that litigation as well. So um, but at the end of the day, the governor doesn't have any say in this. Uh, it really comes down to these two U.S. senators. When we talk about district court nominations, Article three federal district court nominations, uh, sitting senators in the state still have uh, the ability to um, you know, place a hold on on a nominee. And so the, the nominees that uh, if, if both uh, Senators Langford and Mullen don't give a green light, the administration isn't going to put a nomination up there because it's just not going to go anywhere. So um, President Biden is still uh, on pace to appoint, you know, uh, a lot of judges around the country, but he's still falling behind, you know, where President Trump will be, would have been at the end of his third year and certainly at the end of President Trump's fourth year. If we look at district court judges and appellate court judges around the, the United States right now, about 30 percent in each in each category, uh, these are lifetime appointments, were appointed by President Trump. So, you know, President Trump changed the face of about a third of the judiciary in the appellate and the district court level uh, in a way that we see every single day and the and the decisions coming out of these courts. So, uh, you know, kudos to to uh, to Sarah Hill for this nomination. Congratulations. It's a big deal. Uh, and for the Biden administration and both to, to our United States senators for working with the administration to come up with a nominee that they felt was acceptable. Neva. I think it's important to note that that these types of uh, nominations come after a, an, an incredible amount of scrutiny, review, um, the process is rigorous, and ultimately to be vetted to the point that you can uh, find your name being moved forward as a nominee, um, it, is, it is at that point as you say, Ryan, it is at that point that it is determined that that they meet the qualifications without uh, without any real uh, questions, A and it is then the two United States senators who do have the prerogative to basically uh, uh, bring the whole process to a screeching halt if they choose to by not, not by not being willing to move the nominations forward. In this instance, I think we see not only with uh, Sarah Hill, but also with the second uh, uh, individual, uh, John Russell, a former federal prosecutor, that both of these individuals, many believe, may be on a fast track to actually move through the uh, the Senate hearings and, and a vote by, vote by the full United States Senate before the end of the year, which would be uh, in very swift time in 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 the uh, in this type of process, given federal judicial nominations and approval. So it is a big deal. I think, uh, as you outlined, uh, Ryan, it is incredibly important that the positions be filled, given the backlog that uh, that the courts are seeing as a as a result of McGirt and other things happening. And I think that it will um, it will be interesting to see if the White House comes back and it makes a push to try to have uh, additional nominees move through the process for these other openings that that are still out there in Oklahoma to, to fill the positions that are currently uh, available. So. Um, people have been watching with interest uh, across the country how the uh, how the nominations are going with respect to the courts. And as you say, I mean, given given the fact that 
every administration has an opportunity to really make a fairly significant uh, imprint on the judiciary with their nominees if they are confirmed. It will be, uh, I think it will be interesting to to watch moving forward the next round of uh, nominees here in Oklahoma and beyond and what those look like as well. And if these conversations between the Biden administration and Senator Lankford and Senator uh, Mullen uh, create an avenue, an opportunity uh, for them to have uh, productive conversations about other nominations. You know, the state of Oklahoma has three U.S. attorney positions for each federal district that we have. You know, right now there are, there are currently no nominations for U.S. attorney. We've been operating under acting U.S. attorneys, uh, which you know, you know, not to say that those folks are uh, not qualified to do the job. Often they're extraordinarily qualified to do the job, uh, but the fact remains that these are nominated positions that should be uh, 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 and then approved by the confirmed by the United States Senate. And when we have vacancies there, uh, I think that, you know, that's that's a, a real uh, shortcoming of the system. And so hopefully these conversations uh, between the administration and our two U.S. senators will lead a path towards getting some of these other positions filled, even if it's in uh, the third or towards the end of the third year of the Biden administration's first term. And I think it's important to note, I mean, obviously, uh, the political dimension to this, while the first and foremost, I think in these high level confirmation uh, positions, uh, it it requires someone with a resume, someone that is qualified and can pass the levels of scrutiny to get ultimately to the to the point that they are the nominee. So um, I, I don't think we're talking about a situation where there is by any point of view, some sort of a rubber stamp developing that whatever's put forward uh, would be automatic that the that either or both United States senators would just move forward on it with no questions. I feel certain based on what the process typically is on these types of uh, nominations, that there are extensive interviews uh, uh, with with these individuals, as well as a myriad of other folks involved throughout the process to make sure that questions are answered and concerns are uh, addressed so that when it gets to this point, uh, typically, there is the possibility of some pretty easy sledding to to get on through and to the finish line and actually be confirmed. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny May Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.